So I was about 12 years old, playing a game of touch football with my brother in the front yard of our home near Seattle, Washington. And as you might imagine, a game of touch football between two adolescent brothers kind of resembles something between Australian rugby and professional wrestling. I don't know exactly what happened. Someone threw the ball, someone missed the ball, but somehow it, it ended up in the yard right between the two of us. We kind of decided about the same time to pounce on it. Dave was a little closer, maybe a little faster, but he ended up there first, which meant that he was on top of the ball, I came down on top of Dave. A little twist, a little juke to the side, and the next thing I know, I'm tumbling head over heels through the air until I landed with a crack on the top of my neck. Dave saw the look of <clears throat> agony on my face, and he rushed inside to find Mom. When she saw me, she immediately recognized that this wasn't the normal case of bumps and bruises between brothers. She went back in the house to dial 911. I couldn't move my arms or head, but within minutes, I could hear the sound of fire trucks and ambulances rumbling up our front drive. The heads of paramedics and firefighters began to appear <clears throat> in my field of vision. I could hear them talking off to the side about what to do next. And, and pretty soon, a paramedic comes up, and his head kind of enters my field of vision, and he says, Okay, Tim, in order to assess the extent of your injuries, we're going to have to get your coat off. But since you can't move, we're going to have to cut through the sleeves of it to remove it from you. As soon as his big medical shears appeared, I lost it. I wept almost uncontrollably. And the only words I could get out between the sobs were, no, 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 not, not my winter coat. Mom and Dad said that this has to last all winter. They can't afford a new winter coat for me. And in an instant, the, the pain that I was in was completely overshadowed by the agony of anxiety and worry and fear that paralyzed my 12-year-old world. I'm pretty confident my story isn't actually that unique. What is it that casts a shadow of worry and fear in your life? Have you felt that sense of anxiety welling up in your heart to the point where you feel just paralyzed, not sure what direction to turn? I would guess that most of you have faced crises in your lives much larger than a 12-year-old child's winter coat. This morning, we're going to read together in Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 25. It'll be up on the screen here or page 1477 in your pew Bibles if you want to read along as well. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? The body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store up in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour 
to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed as one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father, who knows that you need them, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word of the Lord. So we're in a 15-week series exploring some of the most quotable teachings of Jesus. The words we just read are part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It started with the Beatitudes, which John spoke about last week. So I don't know if you caught it, but I really appreciated John's observations that these blessed are phrases, the Beatitudes, they both turn our cultural perspective upside down and at the same time they restore things to right side up, the way things are meant to be. The entire section of Jesus' teachings is helping to reorient his listeners to the kingdom of heaven. If you've read through chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, it may sound like a series of almost random sayings and proverbs and teachings and laws that Jesus is pulling out, but actually it's a really well-crafted exploration of the kingdom of God. Do you remember how Jesus started his ministry? Jesus began by preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. That's that's the gospel, that's the good news. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. And now, just a few verses later, surrounded by a crowd of thousands of people, Jesus sits down on the hillside and begins to describe what this kingdom really is. He uses words which still speak to us today. Jesus comes to this point in his sermon. He looks around at the thousands of pairs of eyes riveted on him, and he makes a bold assertion. The kingdom of heaven is not marked by worry and anxiety. Somehow, by going straight to the core of our most basic needs, Jesus is saying that none of our needs fall outside of kingdom provision. That it's not just about the food and the clothes and the drink, but but it's about God's care for all aspects of our lives. Somehow, this brings us right back to the beginning. In Genesis, the first couple chapters, we see God creating the earth. He creates everything, and, and then we read of his first gift to mankind. He, he plants a garden, 
that we call Eden. And he, he takes Adam, his new creation, he puts him in the garden, and he causes trees to grow, trees which are, are beautiful, pleasing to the eye, and good for food. And he feeds creation. Then, after the tragic choice which broke apart that first kingdom, God gave another gift. He made garments for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. And so now, sitting on this hillside, it's as if Jesus is saying to the crowd, saying to each of us, God, the inexhaustible creator of everything, the, the source of all good things, has shared it all with you. And, and even when you break that relationship, in the shadow of your darkest fear and consequences, God, the loving Father, demonstrates his care for you again. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. God has been in the business of feeding and clothing since the very beginning. This is a beautiful, joyful acknowledgement of God's goodness. I mean, you can imagine Jesus just watching the birds wheeling through the air joyfully and, and, and grasping that imagery, sitting amidst the, the lilies, the crocuses, the flowers of the field, and, and weaving that beauty through his narrative. But there's still something wrong, right? Do, do you feel that? I mean, on the one hand, these words of Jesus almost sing comfort and peace and joy into my heart, but on the other hand, I find myself wrestling really deeply with this stuff. Maybe you are too. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking of all the ways that you've experienced God's generous, extravagant gift, his freedom from worry and seeing people restored to life. But maybe this doesn't ring true for you. You feel deeply wounded by disappointments, by abandonment and the weight of desperate anxiety and worry. And you're thinking, no, none of this makes sense in my world. If I'm totally honest, my feelings don't always match Jesus' words either. I, I mean, sure, God feeds the birds, right? But we see birds die all the time. Personally, I've never really been in truly desperate financial straits. And yet, We've seen children from around the world who are forced to, to carry buckets of water miles to their home and have to choose between an education and eating that day. I really can't afford fancy clothes to wear. And yet, there are people right here in the Twin Cities who depend on the generosity of organizations like CES to provide food so that they can simply eat a regular meal. How do we make sense? Of all of that. If this is Jesus turning his kingdom back right side up, what does it tell us about the kingdom? And to begin to understand how this passage helps shape our hearts and, and contour our lives, I think we need to back up a bit. Verse 25, which we just read, starts out, therefore I tell you. And therefore always indicates that Jesus is referring to what came before. He's talking about something that's already happened. So we'll start back a little bit. Starting in chapter 5, Jesus is contrasting the kingdom of heaven 
to the broken kingdom of man. The blessed are statements that we read last week set the stage for a new perspective. And then Jesus engages in this whole series of compare and contrast statements, right? So we have, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And he's showing us this comparison between kingdoms. Each statement spotlights the shape of a redeemed kingdom against the backdrop of the old. About halfway through chapter 6, kind of verse 19, he starts to contrast the short-lived pursuit of earthly treasures, the, the stuff which can fill our lives, versus seeking eternal treasure. Why does he do that? Because where our treasures are reveals the condition of our hearts. So then he gives us this kind of mysterious comparison of, of eyes, eyes which are filled with light versus eyes which are closed by darkness. And I think what he's referring to here is to the ability to see this right-side-up kingdom of light versus being consumed by the worldly kingdom of darkness. And so we come to verse 24. This is the antecedent of this morning's passage. This is the, this is true to which our therefore responds. So we'll read that. Starting in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will despise the one. Sorry, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Again, Jesus has presented us with a contrasting perspective on life. We will serve God, that is, become subjects to the heavenly kingdom, or we will serve money and become subject to the kingdom of men. The kingdom of men is marked by pursuing treasures on earth, by material things, by chasing after wealth and self-sufficiency. Of course, that's still true today, isn't it? All around us we see this endless pressure to acquire more, bigger, better. People work harder to earn more, to achieve a more successful feeling lifestyle, which then requires them to work harder, to earn more, to support and maintain that lifestyle. Okay, think about this. Currently, there are over 1.6 billion, that's billion with a B, square feet of rentable self-storage space in the United States. Okay, that's enough stuff space that every single American alive could stand together at one time under the roof of a self-storage unit. Our commitment to stuff has never been greater. And when Jesus says, don't worry, it could hardly be more counter-cultural. The earthly pursuit of stuff isn't an accident. There are very real systems. There are, are agents working to stoke the fires of our cravings, to stir our minds with discontent, to focus our hearts on having more. Advertising alone is a multi-billion dollar industry in the U.S. and around the world. It has the sole purpose of convincing us not 
that we want more stuff. That's not what advertising does. Advertising convinces us that we need more, that we have to have more, that our lives would be complete if only. And they're very, very good at what they do. And just ask my nine-year-old daughter after an hour of cartoons, and she will tell you exactly how good the advertisers are. And that's where hope comes in. Jesus offers an alternative. He tells us we don't have to worry about all the stuff, what to eat and what to wear. We don't have to chase treasures that crumble to dust. Why not? Because the king of this right-side-up kingdom is also a father. The father we learned to pray to in verse 9, that our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's the father who created all of this to begin with, who loves to feed and to clothe. He's the father who loved Jesus who loved the world so much that he sent Jesus in the first place. That's our Father. And when we chase after his kingdom, the worry and the anxiety of the world begin to fade away bit by bit. So this year for Christmas, I got a new puppy. I named him Tink after the young, energetic king-to-be in the Wingfeather series, which my family has come to love. So when I've attended, if many of you have dogs, many of you have raised puppies, for me, when I attended puppy classes in the past, I learned a key lesson. Your puppy should always understand that you are the source of all good things in their life. And when they see you that way, when they see you as the loving font of all goodness, they will literally trip over their big paws to be close to you. I think it's an interesting metaphor. It's a fun, it's not exact, it's not perfect, but it's a good metaphor. When we recognize that God is the source of all good things in our life, we have every reason to seek after him and to draw close to him and to reflect that love into the world. So all this doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan, that we should avoid wisdom or saving for a rainy day but it does become a matter of priorities. If we give in to a scarcity mentality that believes there isn't enough and we have to fight and hoard and scrape together everything we need to chase after wealth for our own security and our own protection, then we miss the richness of the kingdom. We trade the eternal for the temporary. and That's always a bad bargain. But this also is not a promise of wealth, really even a promise of enough, people still struggle. The flowers still fade away and die, but the contrast is the pagans in verse 32 run after all of these things because they don't know any other source of hope. What they can grab here, what they see in the world around them, and, and the things they can hold on to is the only thing that they know to hold on to. Those who seek the kingdom first, those whose eyes are turned to a heavenly reality, find deep hope beyond what they see here. I think that's where all of this stuff really starts to make sense. Real 
peace, the freedom from worry and anxiety doesn't come from the upside-down world we're in, the, the world that's locked on material stuff. This is actually the whole story of God and, and man, is his desire to care for us and to love us and to call us his own. One of the beautiful things that happens when we reorient to this reality is that we become less focused on ourselves and we have more space to focus on a world around us. There's a vital community component to the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus was not speaking just to individuals, which is how I tend to read these words. This is shaping Tim in the text. But Jesus was actually speaking to the crowd and reminding us that how we live impacts others. It changes the world we live in and the people who live here with us. So Rachel, Joy, and I had Christmas dinner with some friends this year, friends in the neighborhood. They're, they're really an inspiration to me. They try to limit their own lives in a way to promote the lives of people around them. So we're hanging out, we're playing cards after Christmas dinner, and my attention was captured by a, a sign on their kitchen wall. And it read, it read this, live simply so that others may simply live. I thought, wow, that reflects the heart of Jesus so beautifully. In Luke's account of the same sermon, he writes, don't be afraid, little flock, as your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now go, sell your possessions and give to the poor. In the kingdom economy, blessing and riches aren't defined by what we have or how much we own. Instead, blessing is the measure of how we spend our lives to bless others. I think that brings up a good question at this point. All right, so what does it look like to let go of worry and anxiety? And what does it mean to reorient to this right-side-up kingdom that I'm talking about? And three responses come to mind for me. The first is gratitude. Not only does gratitude recognize God's care and provision for us, it actually helps protect us from sliding back into worry, back into anxiety. It actually protects our perspective. In Psalm 16, David wrote, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen in beautiful places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. David sings these grateful praises because God has, has established his life and his land in pleasant, beautiful places and has, has built this life for him. But it's key to recognize David wrote these words as a refugee in exile, in the desert, fleeing for his life from Saul, who was trying to kill him. When, when David praised God for his great provision and beautiful land, he was living homeless, fleeing for his life, and having no assurance of the future except for the words that a prophet had spoken to him years before. Next, I think living beyond worry creates space in our lives for joy. 
When all of our emotional energy is focused on trying to secure our own future, it's very difficult to discover and cultivate a sense of the joy in the world around us. We learn that the things that we buy can't really offer us the joy we seek. Something that triggers joy in my heart is nature. I spent last week at a conference center about an hour south of the cities for a work conference we were involved in. It, we had the joy of watching out these great big glass windows as dozens of birds just darted about through the bushes and the trees and the snow. It, it was truly amazing. You'd watch these little birds and they're flying through sub-zero temperatures and, and seeking, seeking food in the, in the branches of these bushes and flying through snow flurries in their little feather suits that God had given them. And, and we just watched and we almost laughed in joy because it was so cool. We're like, how do their feet not freeze to the branches? It is literally 10 below out there. And yet there's this source of joy in the sense of the simplicity of it all. So then I think responses of gratitude and joy lead to a habit of generosity. One of the beautiful things that we have experienced, Rachel and I, in our years of work with refugees, is their unexpected generosity. Time and again, we've seen them share, uh, not from their surplus, but from their lack and from the little they have. We know of refugee churches in Kakuma Refugee Camp in Kenya, a camp of 260,000 homeless refugees, and yet they give a portion of their meager UN rice rations in order that the poorer people outside of the camp might be able to eat. And I have to add this. This isn't just a material generosity. I think speaking generously of people, of communities of people, extending welcome to the vulnerable, all of this reflects a kingdom character. People who have experienced hope in God's provision are marked by a generous spirit. Letting go of our worry cultivates gratitude, joy, and generosity in our hearts. But at this point, it would be logical to be asking, that's great, but how do we do it? How do we let go of the worry and anxiety? And my answer is actually exactly the same. I believe that as we learn to intentionally practice gratitude and joy and generosity in our lives, worry and anxiety lose their grip on us. And that in turn produces gratitude and joy and generosity in our lives. And it's this kind of, kind of spiral that's pointing us right back to the heart of Jesus. So, the paramedic put away his scissors, and he and four firefighters came around me and moved me and managed to slide the arms off my coat, and load me on a stretcher, take me to the hospital, where they x-rayed me and discovered a fairly minor broken shoulder. My mom kind of laughed warmly and gently and reassured me they would have found a new coat, because that's what loving parents do. And at the end of the day, God knows what we need. 
He knows that our real need is not measured in what we eat or what we drink or what we wear, but in an eternal perspective on life. Unlike the flowers of the field, which are here today and die tomorrow, the kingdom that Jesus is inviting us to participate in is eternal. The king of the kingdom is a good king and a loving father. Let's pray. Father, you are the source of goodness in our lives, whether we recognize it or not, whether we understand how it works, whether we always feel your goodness at work. Father, you love us. You relish in feeding and clothing us. Father, whether our fears and anxieties are a lack of resources and money and food and not knowing how to navigate life or whether it's medical or whether it's any of these things that crowd in on us, the story of your kingdom redeems us and promises that what we see here isn't the end. And we lift that up to you. Lord, I just ask that you would continue to fill us with an eternal perspective, that you would speak into our hearts gently and joyfully, that you are the Father who loves us, that you have it all under control, and we can reflect that in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.